do in the winter. Hello and welcome to the fourth in these episodes from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva and Gometra. I'm Alistair Satchel, I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. In this episode I talk with Anne Cleave. Anne and her husband Colin moved to Mull in the late 90s and ran Round and About, a local newspaper, and published The Red Book, her local phone book, amongst many other things. Our conversation goes into Anne's life here, her working life before coming to Mull, the Salon Show, being the archivist at Duke Castle, and her studies with the Open University after retiring. Anne also talks about the death of her sister, Elsie Frost, who was murdered when she was a teenager. You can find this section at about half an hour into the episode. I'd like to thank Anne again for her willingness and ability to talk about the loss of her sister. When we come to talk about Merlin and Arthurian matters in the later part of the podcast, I struggle to remember the name of a play supposedly associated with Shakespeare. The name of the play is The Birth of Merlin, and on further research, it's unlikely that Shakespeare had anything to do with it, but it's counted amongst possible collaborations, sort of. There are links and more on the website for many of the topics we talk about. I'll be back at the end to see a couple more things in Randolph. Without further ado... And Cleave. Who are you? I'm Anne Cleave, and known as Anne of Cleves to a lot of people on Mull for obvious reasons. And how long have you been on Mull? Um, just over twenty-two years. What brought you here? So that's going back 22 years, that's sort of 1996. Mm, mm. What brought you to, to Mull in the first place? Uh, interesting story. Um, I worked for the museum service in Portsmouth and I was the trading uh, officer. So I looked after the trading operation in seven different museum shops, which ranged from Charles Dickens' birthplace museum to the D-Day Museum, South Sea Castle, where Henry had been standing when he saw the Mary Rose go down. We had a natural history museum, we had a beam engine museum, and we had the cabinet war rooms um, under Portsdown Hill. So I created all the merchandise for selling in the shops. So the merchandise was as individual to the uh, museum as it could be. So we had the D-Day Museum, and in the D-Day Museum, there is the Overlord Embroidery, which is a very long embroidery which tells the story of the events leading up to D-Day on the 6th of June in 1944. So there were lots and lots of books about the military aspect of D-Day, but there was nothing for the ladies who went around the museum and who were looking at the embroidery. Um, they didn't know that um, that little piece of material that was um, Montgomery's cap actually came from Montgomery's cap. So I thought we really do need a book about the Overlord embroidery from its historical aspect, from its craft aspect. So I spoke to a friend of mine who was, um, um, he was an agent, he was a literary agent. And I said to him, Vernon, who can you recommend for me to um, write the textile history of the Overlord embroidery? And he said, ah, he said, how about Eve Eckstein? Oh my goodness. So the nice thing about Eve Eckstein was that she didn't live too far away from us. She lived in Harrow at the time. And we were going through all, we, uh, we took Eve on to do the job. And um, eventually we got to publication 
and Colin and I had done the index because at that point I belonged to the Society of Indexes as well. And because it was quite an academic book, it needed a proper index. So Eve said to me one day, I really ought to pay you for doing the index, she said, as, as co-author with Stephen, who was our military historian. And I said, well, you can't. I said, I can't accept any payment because I work for the museum service and Portsmouth City Council don't allow me to take payments. Well, she said, I can pay you in kind. So I said, oh, yes, what kind is that then? So she said, I have a house on Mull. She said, and you can go and stay in my house for two weeks, twice a year, for two years. So I said, done. That's fantastic. That's a great story, isn't it? Anyway, um, we came up to Mull the first time in two, uh, 1995, I think it was. And we drove off the boat and we turned right, heading towards Saarland to come through to Toloisk. And before we got to Saarland, we knew we were going to be here one day permanently. We just knew. And Colin was enthu as enthusiastic as I was, so it was really nice. So um, uh, we enjoyed our free holidays at Toastery. And during that time, um, we decided we'd get married here in Tobermory. Yes. So in uh, August um, 1988, we got married in Tobermory. And um, James McNabb, who was the registrar at the time, said to us both, you two are so wrapped up in each other, you'll have to make sure that you don't become reclusive. So we said, oh, yeah, all right. Um, and we decided at this point that it wouldn't be a good idea just to come and retire here. We wanted to be able to give something to the community. So Eve rang us up one day and she said, I've got something to tell you, I've got something to tell you. She says, you've got to come up and, and meet the girls who were selling Mull laser print. And at that point, Mull laser print was um, publishing round and about and it had started the Red Book or it had revived the Red Book. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. And it did all sorts of things like the Highland Games literature, all the stuff for Saarland Show, all the stuff for Benesson, lots and lots of small jobbing printing. So we hit it really well off with uh, Erica and Brenda and we bought the business and we bought the house. Um, we sold our house in uh, Middlesex and uh, that was us on our way to Mull. Um, so that's the story of how we came to Mull, which, which was quite a nice story. Yeah. And how did you meet Colin? Museum again. Um, I, were, I had um, separated from my husband at that point and was, I was feeling quite vulnerable and one day um, one of the curators said to me, Anne, there's a really nice man working down in the gallery. Would you take him a cup of tea and a biscuit? So I said, no, thank you. So she said, oh, come on, Anne. She said, the man's working really hard. Just take him a cup of tea and a biscuit. And I said, no, Penny. N-O, no. Watch my lips. Anyway, she wheedled and wheedled and wheedled. And eventually I went downstairs with a tray with two cups of coffee on it and two biscuits. And that was me meeting Colin. He'd designed and he was installing a new exhibition display system in one of the galleries at the City Museum and Art Gallery. So that was how we met. And um, we, he had a long history of working in museums and art galleries because he was a design engineer. And he designed... Um, display systems and um, galleries and he worked in banks and he would often be found doing a job in the Bank of England at night. Yes, 
It was stopped on more than one occasion by a policeman who said, and uh, uh, where is your car, sir? Uh, as Colin was getting out of the car, oh, is this your car, sir? Colin would say yes. And um, the policeman would say to him, uh, what are you doing here in the city at this time of night? I'm doing a job at the Bank of England. And the policeman would often go, ha, 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 up his sleeve. But Colin would be installing demountable partition systems to divide officers up and all that kind of thing. So he'd worked all the way up and down um, the whole of the, the UK and in um, Isle of Man. He, he did all sorts of things, so yes. So uh, our two sets of interests met really well. So, and uh, um, we, we, we just we did become very close friends. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, doing the maths there, it sounds like uh, you've got a bargain out of you. You didn't? Did you even get the two two years of holidays? Uh, yes, we did. Right. Yeah, we did. Uh, but uh, he did get the bargain because I played paid for the marriage license, uh. and uh, he he would often say to me, "If ever you're short of cash, I can lend you six shillings," which he assumed was the cost of the marriage license. And I would always rib him and say, you, you still owe me for that. You still owe me for that. So. <laughs> and if we were to go back to kind of the start of your own life, what was the story of your parents? Where, where, where did they come from? Where, where were they based? Well, I, they, they were um, based, they lived in Wakefield in Yorkshire, West Riding. And I had always thought that my family were Yorkshire, Yorkshire, Yorkshire all the way through. But I discovered that my mother's forebears came from the northeast. And they were miners, and they moved down from the northeast down into West Yorkshire for better mining opportunities. And my father's forebears came from London. And um, I'm struggling a little bit with uh, the ancestry on that side because I'm looking for a, a man called Henry Frost, who was born in a particular year. And at the moment, I found five of them. Five Henry Frost. So he might have been um, a musician's porter, a harp maker's porter, uh, or he might have been um, a piano maker's porter, or he might have been a book porter. I don't know quite which one yet. I rather like the idea of the harp maker's porter. I do. Nice. And they moved north in the um, Industrial Revolution. Um, so that was how um, my immediate family ended up in Yorkshire, my grandparents on both sides. My father's father was an agricultural labourer and um, his mother looked after the children. My mother's father was a miner and grandma looked after their children. And um, they were all in, in and around that area of Wakefield, which includes Normanton and Altofts. And so that's where we all started out. It's interesting, my family, um, Satchel is a very unusual name. There's not very many of us at all, although we've tried to increase by one. Um, and, um, the, looking back in our family history, we, we know that they were in London. My great-grandfather was in London, and my grandfather as well was in London, in Lambeth, of all places. Yeah, that's where my lot were. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. Lambeth, yeah. There's some amazing um, archive footage on the BFI site of Lambeth in the early 1900s, which yeah. is really worth looking at. Um, you see the, the level of poverty of the children and, and yeah, it's filmed during the day, so it's mostly kids that are kicking about, actually, and it's very, very interesting. But uh, so yeah, we if my my auntie looked into it a little bit more, and most of the satchels she could find were in court records, ah. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. And it's like oh, they all seem to be on the, the wrong side of the dock. Yeah. <laughs> but no idea for what it could have been for stealing a loaf of bread, the classic thing, or it could have been something. So that's yeah, we don't really know much about where the satchels came from at all, which is kind of curious. Mm. Anyway. 
you've already got the skills of indexing. That must have been quite useful when you came to Mull. It's been useful throughout all my life because it gave me... Um, it, 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 you ha I had the skill of being able to sort things. Um, I could file. Um, I knew how to put things in order. I knew how to retrieve stuff. So you were able to uh, do research, retrieve documents. Um, so the indexing was a really good and sound um, basis for doing lots and lots of other things. So I didn't use it very much, um, but I did once get an award for a good index, <laughs> which was quite nice. <laughs> and when you came to Mull, so you took over the business of Mull Laser Print. That kind of, kind of dates it. Then, yeah, it you know. does, yeah. Uh, well, tell me, what, um, what had existed before the Red Book? Are you aware of what was it came before? Yes, uh, George Sassoon, who lived uh, down at uh, Loch Bowie, um, he had... Um, I don't know whether he'd done it on his own, but he'd uh, created a little green telephone directory for Mole, just in a little A5 format. And um, uh, But it had come into um, disuse. It had fallen out. It wasn't printed anymore, although I have got a copy of George's little um, uh, green one. But Erica and Brenda decided it would be a good idea to revive it. And so they did revive it. Um, and it was basically just um, a residential directory um, with a, a little bit of advertising in it as well to support the expense of, of producing it. So when we took it on, uh, Colin loved the idea of the Red Book and um, it, it appealed to his sense of order. Being an engineer, uh, everything is, was very ordered. So um, he developed a little, a little bit further to the extent that he put postcodes in the back of it. Um, he put a business index in, alphabetical index, uh, and he really worked very hard on it. Um, he would go up to the council offices once every three years to check who had uh, passed away so that he could take them out of the book. We never took any third-party uh, references because we came a cropper once when somebody said, you haven't got so-and-so in the red book. And Colin said, oh, have you got the information then? So, yes. So we were given the name and the telephone number of this person. And then when the book was published, um, we, we had a phone call from said person who said, my number is X directory. Oh, no. Uh, you shouldn't, shouldn't be in there. So um, uh, he was quite upset. Yeah. So after that, Colin only ever put um, entries in that were verified by the telephone subscriber so but yeah I mean he even after he'd retired because he was 65 the year after we moved to Mole and he carried on working for a, a, a very long time into his early 80s um, and uh, he, the red book was just a joy for him to do he just loved doing it you know and he would drive around and people would say oh new edition of the red book can I have one you know and they'd give him the money in his hand and he'd hand them over a red book you know so he got to know quite a lot of people like that I know for me coming here from from being away uh, I felt like I'd really made a commitment to living here when I got in the red book <laughs> yes it's, it's a shame in a way because a lot of people don't realize that it isn't an automatic no, way of getting in you have to you have it's to select contact. club yeah, because it's not like the BT book, which is automatically includes all its subscribers. 
people have to elect to be in the yeah. red book and I sometimes look in the red book and I think oh darn it they're not in the red book I wish everybody was in the red book yeah. so uh, yes it, somebody was told Colin that it was uh, required reading for any visitor to Mull required bedtime reading for any visitor to Mull because <laughs> it's got so much information in it it was actually Georgia that told me you should, you should get your details into the red, the red book. I thought, and Georgia was my girlfriend at the time, and now my wife. And uh, yeah, it was quite, it was quite like, oh, I want, can I be part of that club? Should I? Should I? And yeah, so when I first went in, I think it was just my mobile because I was kind of between so many different houses. I think we're now in uh, with our house number. I need to check that. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, I mean that that was one of Colin's innovations was to include people's mobile numbers if they wanted. Better. That's a brilliant way to do it because, yeah, yeah. yeah, it makes a lot, of, especially around here because people, you know, the nature of housing is that people don't always have a house that they're in. They can move from summer let to winter let to on and on and on. Right, yeah, yeah. It makes a difference. Yeah, yeah. and of course the the beauty of it was uh, we had had it printed away. And so that was why there was a new every edition, a new edition every third year. Um, but eventually, Colin thought it would be more practical to present to print the contents at home, and just have the covers printed away. So that meant that he would um, amend it on a daily basis. So if he got somebody, oh, sent him an email today. Yeah. Uh, he would amend it on the on the system yeah. and if somebody sent him an email next week he would amend it on the system and then the very next time that he printed the contents yeah. which he did to order for the shops it would be as up to date as it possibly could be That's fantastic. Um, and it meant that even if people changed their mobile numbers yeah. um, you know, it was so up to date. You had email addresses in there as well, is that right? Uh, no, we didn't have. He, he decided that email addresses at that point were a bit of a difficulty because people had lots yeah. and people changed them more often than they changed their phone numbers, you know, their, their mobile numbers. So he decided he wouldn't. But we were, um, we talked to one or two people who said they thought that it would be good to have the Red Book online. And that would have been an opportunity then to put people's email addresses in, uh, in an online um, edition. So, but um, because the, the technicalities of, of publishing the, the Red Book meant that you could only have a certain number of, pay, you had to increase it in four page units. Ah. And so if you weren't careful, you would end up with uh, lots of empty pages until you gradually fill them up. And he used to adjust the leading and, uh, you know, the type size for some things or he'd contract words just to make it all fit within the page until he had enough information that he could put in another four pages. And I think it grew from, I don't I think it was 24 pages to something like 36 pages in. So, oh, that used to be a nightmare, people's nicknames. And people would say to us, oh, well, you just need to ask whoever it was. Oh, well, who's, who, you know, who is it? You know, so we gradually learned people's nicknames. And yes, it would have been a good idea to put nicknames in on a special page. I think that would have been brilliant. Yeah. So I think there might be one or two people who would have preferred not to have their names in. When you came here, you had uh, Mull Laser Print. Um, what what else did you do with the company as well? Did you do Did you carry on the association with Sal and Show? Oh yes. Uh, the other thing that we did is the the other thing that we bought when we bought the business was um, 
we ran the secretariat for both the Chamber of Commerce and Holiday Mall. So Colin and I were very much involved with Holiday Mall and the Chamber of Commerce from day one because it was part of the service that the business provided was the secretariat work for both of those organisations. We did do, we continued to do um, Benesson um, show for quite a while, but we always stayed connected very closely with Sarlin show. And um, we were both pretty passionate about Sarlin show and now I'm trophy secretary and look after 80 trophies. So um, yeah, uh, and uh, that work with Barbara Weir, who was secretary for so many years, was a really great foundation because what Barbara didn't know about Silent Show was not worth knowing. And she passed all that information very generously on to Colin and I. And so um, we knew that the the workings of the show right from, you know, from Barbara, from the roots, if you like. So that stood us in good stead for the show. Duncan McGilp, who I interviewed the other day, talked about the trophy that he gave, which had been in his family. Yeah, the, the McGilp Medal, yes. which is it's awarded for the best Highland bull. And um, I, <coughs> I thought, oh, that's a wonderful award. And um, he gave it into the care of uh, Donald McGilvery at Penny Gown. And uh, Donald asked Charlie Hogg to make a mount for it. So it's um, mounted in a, a beautiful piece of wood and standing on a wooden mount as well. And uh, it went to Tom Nelson at, at Glengorm for his Highland Bull, which is an absolutely beautiful animal. Yeah, so it's a really lovely one. Well done to Duncan. And I think it may well be that as a result of Duncan's medal coming back to the show, I think we might have another one coming back as well. But we've had some interesting f uh, returns this last year or so. Um, because this year also we've had the Silent Businessmen's Trophy, which has not been seen since the beginning of the 20th century. <laughs> and we also had the Alexander Duncan um, Cup, which is a little Britannia metal cup, uh, known as Pewter, also known as Pewter. And that was awarded to um, Alexander Duncan, who was the farm manager uh, at um, Dewitt Stroke Torresay Farm. And that had not been seen since 1895. And even researching in the museum, I've not been able to find out what it was awarded to him for. It's just got his name on it. And there's nothing in the uh, uh, minute books that tell me why the Alexander Duncan Cup was awarded to him. I know that he was a very active member and he went to committee meetings when they were held in Oban all those years ago. So we present that one to the best overall dog in the show, which is a nice one. Did the Salon show, did it grow out of the meetings uh, that they used to have kind of uh, in halfway down the glen there? Do you know what, where, how it started? Oh, you mean the the cattle fair, the, the fair? The fair. Yeah. Uh, I don't really know, but I would imagine it did. Um, I haven't done a history of the show. Um, that might be a good idea, mm. actually. I've got a very good friend, Hilary Peel, who will be known by a lot of people, um, who is a very, very good historian and writer. Right. And it might be a nice idea to collude with Hillary and do a history of silent show. I think that would be very interesting. Yeah, so I, I imagine that it would it would have been um, something to do with the the fair. It's always been um, a good thing for um, breeders to have awards for their stock because it helps them to sell. So, um, and I think that was always the objective. So right from early days. Yeah. So it just shows, doesn't it, how far back it goes? I think we had was it ah. Uh, 150 years of the show, about two years ago. So it's really quite a long-standing show. 
Yeah, yeah. How have you got into working with particularly Duart? What, what's that? Uh, well, uh, the, the Duart Castle um, archive thing came about as a result of my involvement with the Historical Society. When we first came to Mull, we joined Mull Historical Society and there was a, a tiny conflict with Mull Historical Society in the form of Colin McIntyre. Oh, yeah. um, because people kept ringing me up as Secretary of the Historical Society and asking me if they could make a booking for his next gig. Um, and uh, it, it upset one or two of the older members. Uh, as a result, <clears throat> um, we changed the name of the Historical Society to Mole Historical and Archaeological Society. And uh, Sir Lachlan's father had been the patron of the society, right. and we asked Sir Lachlan to continue his patronship of the society, which he agreed to do. And we held a, an event at, the, at Dewitt Castle once a year. But I think Sir Lachlan knew that I was interested in archiving, and um, he just rang me up one day and he said, there's quite a lot of stuff here that needs to be archived and I'd like you to do it. So I said, okay, that's fine. And I said I would work until I was 70. Um, well, that's a bit of history in itself now. <laughs> um, at the moment, it's difficult because there's so much work being done on the castle. Yeah. Um, all, the, all the available space is being used to store family um, things uh, from the private living accommodation. Yeah. So I've not been able to do very much. And um, with Colin being ill for the last couple of years as well, that put, um, you know, it sort of slowed things down a little bit. So I'm hoping to get back into the full swing of that once that area of the castle has been completed and I can get back into the archive room. But there's a huge amount to do. In terms of the treasures that you found in there, what has particularly stood out for you? And no, I don't mean treasures in the sense of gold glittering things, but... No, uh, my favourite, uh, there are a couple of things which are favourites. One is, um, it was a little watercolour sketch pad by, I think it was one of Sir Lachlan's aunts. Yeah. And um, that had been broken down into separate sheets and it had just been put into an ordinary plastic photograph album. And I can sense oh. Georgia oh. shrieking inside at that because uh, it's these lovely little watercolours are uh, in plastic sleeves, which is no good for them at all. But even better than that, these are beautiful. They're really beautiful little watercolours um, are uh, Sir Charles's diaries. And there's dozens and dozens of Charles's diaries. And so wow. not only do they want to be archived and catalogued because they're diaries yeah. but at some time they need to be transcribed as well yeah. and the whole object of doing the do it castle archive will be to make it available yeah. um to as wider um you know public as possible so digitization is uh, sort of looming and was sir charles the one that uh, kind of refurbished the castle and opened it up to the public yes I think I'm right in saying that. Uh, in the <clears throat> late 19th century, Duart Castle was a complete tumbled ruin. Yeah. Absolutely nothing there apart from piles of stones. And um, it was redesigned and rebuilt um, leading up to about 1913. Um, and it was beautifully and sensitively done. And the, the architect, whose name escapes me just at the moment, had also designed the pillars that hold up Sydney Harbour Bridge. And um, Duart Castle was his only ancient building that he'd ever worked on. Right. Um, so, so that was a very interesting thing. 
Um, but uh, <coughs> the, the problems that, we, that are at the castle today are as a result of work that was done in the 1950s when the wrong materials were used for renovation and restoration. So uh, the conservation stonemason, um, Andrew Bradley, uh, has had to remove an awful lot of the material that was used in the 1950s because it was just concrete or it was the wrong kind of stuff. Mm. Anyway, it should have been lime mortar. But they didn't know. They thought they were doing the right thing. Yeah. But it has caused huge problems everywhere yes. throughout the whole of the castle with um, water ingress. Mm. So that's why the scaffolding has been up there for so long because it's a long, slow, tedious process. What kind of lime are they using? Are they using kind of... Uh, hot lime. Okay. I think it's hot lime, yeah. Yeah. And it's um, the architect whose name is Martin Hadlington, um, they uh, had the lime, the original lime analysed and wow. um, the original recipe was used, which is what we did on, Do it, on, on Moy Castle as well. Fantastic. When we were doing the renovation or stabilisation work on Moy Castle, um, the mortar was analysed and um, the conservation stonemason um, had made the lime mortar to the original recipe. So we, we know that it was, yeah, yeah. So we've just got a little bit more work to do on um, Moy Castle at the moment. Right. Um, we've, we've got funding in place for doing the um, entrance steps and, and the door area. There's a broken lintel above the door. Yeah. Um, but our monumental stonemason, Andrew Bradley, had an accident at Dewitt and he's off work at the moment. So we hope he'll be back soon. I'm sorry to hear that, yeah. Uh, Moy is a fascinating castle as well. Uh, the, what what have you found being there? Is there anything? I mean that the the oubliette there is a terrifying thing. <coughs> it is a very interesting building, and it's unique in that it has cross barrel vaulting. So on the ground floor, the barrel vaulting goes in one direction, and on the next floor up, it goes in the opposite direction. So hence, it's called cross barrel vaulting. Was that for strength? Or it must it... have been. Must have been for strength. Um, it's also got a bottle dungeon, which yeah. is um, just big enough and deep enough to hold one man. And um, uh, Jim told me a story. Jim Corbett, who owns the Lockbury Estate and, and therefore the castle. Uh, one of his dogs fell down the hole and um, Jim had to get down into the bottle dungeon to get his dog out, which can't have been much fun. It's also got a very interesting well, which is always full of fresh water. And we do not know how or where this fresh water comes from because the the water surrounding the castle or on you know three sides of it is seawater. Still don't know where the fresh water comes from that's in the well. But it was, it's nice because um, our local um, metal worker, uh, Philippe Regal, has made all the barriers and the covers and everything. So, so that was nice, all beautifully done. So it's now safe to walk around the castle. You still need a guide um, and, uh, because it's a hard hat area. So um, we can provide a hard hat and people can make an appointment and get taken around the castle. We went down... Uh a few last summer I think it was mm -hmm. I was about a year ago yeah and we were doing some filming down there and uh, Call my son loved it that it was fantastic and he uh, both he and George had a truffle round the, the castle I was outside filming um, just kind of moody shots looking upwards and things but yeah he was, he was over the moon the oh, well, uh, Cole would have been interested to know that they've got it's got cave spiders and these are, um, from my understanding, they're um, uh, a species of spider that only uh, live in very dark, damp 
caves, but they're in uh, Moy Castle and they're very long-legged and they've apparently they've got um, their eye structure is um, enlarged so they can see in the dark but they move really really slowly when we were, when we were surveying the inside of the castle um, there was a huge cobweb in one corner and uh, there was this cave spider climbing up it almost looked as if it needed you know pitons and a rope and all the rest of it but um, Cole would have been interested in that yes If it's okay to come on to um, yeah, your, the story of your sister, could you explain to us um, what, what the story of, uh, of your sister was? Thank you. Well, my sister um, was four years younger than me and a um, very, very bright girl. Um, she'd been elected to be head girl at school. And I think she, you know, I'm, I think I'm reasonably bright, but I think it's a fairly well acknowledged uh, fact that my sister would, was a lot brighter than me. But the sad thing was that she died in very unhappy and tragic circumstances when she was 14. Um, she was murdered and um, it was a Saturday afternoon and she'd been teaching Sea Scouts to sail on the local filled in um, gravel uh, pits, which we call the lagoons. And she was on her way home at about just after four o'clock on this Saturday, October Saturday afternoon and um, had to, to get to the road where she would have made her way home from. She had to go under a railway arch and up some steps and there were 26 steps so they were known as the ABC steps. And um, somebody saw her uh, just after four o'clock, some boys on bicycles, and then she was found at about 12 minutes past four at the bottom of the steps and she was dead and she'd been stabbed several times. And um, at the inquest, um, the then coroner uh, had the power to name a suspect if he felt that there was prima facie evidence against a particular person. So a man was named, um, Ian Bernard Spencer, uh, because the coroner, Philip Gill, said that there was prima facie evidence against Ian Bernard Spencer. Well, clearly there wasn't because at the hearing, at the pre-trial hearing in March, um, it, the case was thrown out because the magistrate said that there was insufficient evidence against Mr. Spencer. So Mr. Spencer was um, released and uh, completely exonerated at that time. Mm -hmm. However, um, a lot of people still thought that he was the perpetrator. My mother never did. And um, one day um, in around about April or May in 1966, uh, which was the year after Elsie died, um, we sat down at my mother's dining table and we wrote a letter to the local newspaper to say how pleased we were that Mr. Spencer had been released and mum didn't feel that he was guilty anyway. However, his name was still on the findings of the inquest and they are still today. And Mr. Spencer lived with that shadow over him for the rest of his life. And he died very sadly in March, but at least the police had been to see him to tell him that they had another suspect and there was really good evidence against this other man. 
And for the last, we, we had a memorial uh, service, or rather we called it a tribute service for Elsie in 2015 on the 50th anniversary of her death. And um, with the help of the BBC and Eddie Mayer and their investigative journalist John Minnell, um, West Yorkshire Police decided that they would uh, look at the case again. And a very bright-eyed young policewoman officer spotted a name in the files and um, after saying, oh, who's this? It became apparent that this uh, man was a major suspect and he was still alive. And as a direct result of the work into um, the, the new inquiries into my sister's case, it was discovered that this man had um, committed several other nasty, nasty crimes. And in 1972, five years after my sister died, no, seven years after Elsie died, he'd murdered another 14-year-old girl called Shirley Ann Baldy. And um, everything was pointing more and more towards this man. All the findings of the case were sent to the Crown Prosecution Service. Um, they'd been drip-fed with the information anyway, but the whole complete file went to them last November, and they were deliberating on whether to charge this man, um, and the police were really keen for them to do so. Um, and then he died in March. And we thought, my brother and I thought that that was the end of everything. But we were told, no, you have sound reasons for having a new inquest. Now, the new inquest would do two things. It would take Ian Bernard Spencer's name off the findings. Uh, but what it would allow the police to do would be to um, make known all their findings against Peter Pickering, the man that was about to be charged. He had been arrested on suspicion of my sister's murder twice. Um, and uh, a, a new inquest means that we can um, reveal all their findings, which prove almost, um, you know, sort of incontrovertibly that he was the murderer. So that's our objective at the moment. We're um, raising money through um, a, a brilliant organisation called Crowd Justice, which is run by lawyers and technical people who know about, you know, websites and digital stuff. Mm -hmm. And they monitor um, all the fundraising and they pass it on to your legal team. So we have a legal team and we have a solicitor and a barrister and um, they're working towards preparing a legal memorandum for us, which will be presented to the Attorney General. He will read the memorandum. If he thinks it's appropriate to have a new inquest, he will issue a fiat or a, an order to, to, to the um, Chief Coroner. And uh, that will allow the Chief Coroner then to consider whether we should have a new inquest. So we're just at the stage at the moment of preparing the memorandum for the Attorney General, which will be handed to him um, sometime in the next few weeks. Um, and we have our fingers crossed that um, he will say, yes, um, there is just reason here for a new inquest. Wow. And then it'll go to the Chief Coroner for his decision. So there's quite a lot hanging on what we're doing at the moment. It's really stressful. <laughs> Yes. So, I mean, we feel as though we've done as much as we can do to um, get justice for our sister because, yeah. you know, um, completely innocent 
child really. Child, yeah, yeah. Um, not doing anything but helping people. Um, and to lose our life like that was just tragic. And we couldn't do anything while our parents were still alive because uh, they were both distraught. Mum, yeah. I don't know whether it's a woman thing, but um, she was much more able to talk about my sister than my father was. And that's probably a man thing. Um, and when my dad died in 2003, my brother and I discovered that um, a lot of the family documents had uh, gone. We knew where they should be, but they weren't there. And we think that Dad had uh, got rid of a lot of photographs, uh, my sister's birth certificate and death certificate, uh, all sorts of things, because he found them too painful to have close by him. He could have given them to me, um, but I, it still meant that he would have had to bring it all back and yeah. churn it all up again. So we think he just destroyed everything. So it was um, then that my brother and I decided we'd start looking for our roots again. And it was through doing family history research um, that we discovered the origins of the two families. And then in 2007, we'd been told originally when my sister died that she died from instantly from one stab wound. And eventually in 2007, I plucked up courage and got her death certificate and was horrified to see that she died of multiple stab wounds. And then the police told us that she'd made her way after being stabbed from one end of the tunnel to the other. So, um, you know, she hadn't died instantly. And that was a bit of a torture. That was a bit of a torture, not just for her, but, you know, for us as well at the time. So we thought, well, if we'd been told that she died instantly from one stab wound and then discovered that that wasn't right, how much else was wrong? So that was when we decided we'd try and find out some answers. So uh, we had a few hurdles because we discovered that um, all the documentation, all the files that were held by the National Archives were closed until 2033. So they, they close files like that while ever there are direct living uh, relatives of the victim. So um, uh, it, it was only through John Monell um, and, and Eddie Mayer that we were able to find out as much as we did and we had good responses from the director of the National Archives and we'd just gone on from there and then when Pickering died in March um, we thought well we can't just stop now there must be something else so we had lots of encouragement from people like David Hinchliffe who was uh, was the MP for Wakefield and then now Mary Cray who is the current MP for Wakefield and we've had some very good advice from top line QCs so we're, we're soldiering on, soldiering on. And are you able to say at all about why uh, the Pickering uh, case, when, it, when he was charged or uh, on the line for it twice, why, why did that, why was that never pursued properly? Um, well, that, that's only happened since 2015. Oh, right, not, mm. not before then, right, I see. No, yeah, I right. mean, uh, he's been in secure mental accommodation down in um, down the south of England, in Berkshire, right. for uh, all the years since 1972, when he was arrested and charged with the murder of Shirley Ann Baldy, because he was seen. Um, but he'd committed a lot of offences before that, including a rape and kidnap that he'd been charged... He, he was charged with a rape and kidnap as a direct result of the inquiries into Elsie's murder. So that happened in March, and he was found guilty. And 
um, five days later, um, I was on holiday with my friend Anne. Um, we were down in Cumbria and I had a phone call from the police to say Pickering's dead. And that was five days after he had been found guilty. They hadn't even um, given him his... his um, he told him what, what his uh, punishment would be. Um, so we never got that kind of um, justice at that point. So um, that was quite devastating. Um, yeah, well, that was difficult. Quite ruined the holiday for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for, for talking about that. I appreciate how very difficult that is. So thank you so much. That's. I was going to ask um, how you've come to study over the last few years, why you've chosen in in, uh, in the later part of your life to become uh, academically, uh, you were always academically inclined, I can tell by your, your later work, but what, what led you to this? Well, the year that the Open University was founded, which is 50 years ago, well, just go back a little bit further than that. I only ever went to secondary modern school. Right. And um, uh, so I failed my 11 plus twice, because in those days, if you took your 11 plus and passed the first half, you went on to do the second half. If you failed the second half, they would let you sit the first half again and give you a second chance. And I failed the first half. I passed the first half the first time, failed the second part, but then I got the chance to do the first part again and failed that. I always thought that I could do better. I mean, the teachers were always saying to me, could do better. So I thought I could do better. But I went to a very, very good um, secondary modern school. It was a brand new school and um, a, a marvellous set of teachers and learned so much from my English master who was, he, you know, he's, I still think of him with affection. Um, yeah. uh, Peter Spencer is near, wasn't it? Just a little apocryphal story there is that uh, it was Peter Spencer who first introduced me to Shakespeare. Ah, and uh, he said, right class, we're going to do Romeo and Juliet. And he allocated all the parts of um, the, all the parts to pupils in the class, yeah. and I felt lucky because I got the part of nurse. Ah, and uh, we okay, were, were all waiting to see who was going to be Juliet. Yeah, or oh, nurse is a much more interesting uh, character. Certainly, <laughs> but we were all sitting there on tent hooks wondering which girl was going to be Juliet. And he said, "Well, he said that just leaves Juliet. I'm going to do Juliet." And he was a big man with a baritone voice. And he spoke Juliet's part in a false falsetto voice. And it was, oh, Romeo, Romeo. And it was hilariously funny. Really? But I've loved Romeo and Juliet ever since. Anyway, left school, no qualifications, went to night school, got quite a few O-levels, um, including English language and English literature. And I did a few other things as well. And then when the OU was inaugurated, I decided I would apply and do an art history course. Well, it wasn't to be for various reasons, which I don't need to go into. So in 2009, um, I was twitching because we'd sold the business or most of it. And I just didn't feel as though I had any intellectual challenges anymore. So Colin said, well, why don't you go back to the Open University and, and start that again. So I applied and I decided um, I would do um, an, a, a Bachelor of Arts degree. Yeah. So the target was to get my BA before I was 70. Brilliant. 
So I did work hard. I did apply myself and I got first class honours. Oh, yeah, so then <laughs> after that, the OU invited me to do an MA. Oh, and so uh, I did the BA in uh, lit, literature in English. So it included German and French and okay. uh, Scandinavian. Uh, but it was literature in English. And so I, I did that. But then when I went on to do my MA, it was English. And that was all through the time when Colin was really ill. And uh, I had lots of opportunity for studying because um, I would sit with Colin and uh, read to him from my study books. And I read to the children at Over Primary School now on a regular basis. Um, so he was very encouraging. And I'm glad that I actually got my master's degree uh, before he died. So, so that was nice. So what did you do your master's thesis on? What was your choice? Uh, well, it's a funny one because it was, it it was about Merlin. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, we talked about this. And yes, I it was it really to do with um, the medieval belief in uh, the the magician. Yeah. yeah, and and Merlin is is. Uh, Everybody knows about Merlin. And Everyone claims Merlin as everybody. well. I mean, Merlin was born under Dumbarton Rock. Yeah, he was born backwards, so that he aged from uh, old man oh, to... Oh, yeah, uh, I mean, that's T.H. White. Yeah. There was all sorts of wonderful... St I mean, the research for doing the Merlin thing was... Um, was just fantastic. It was amazing. We, uh, Excalibur is among my favourite films of all time. Uh, yeah. The charm of making an Urthraspetu Dochel Yende. To me, it's like, it's one of these wee things. Uh, and apparently, it was referenced in uh, Ready Player One, the new um, science fiction movie by Steven Spielberg. Oh, there well. you go. Yeah. There's always going to be a reference either to uh, Excalibur or to Arthur or to Merlin. So archetypal, isn't it? Something. Yes, but... Yeah. but I mean, the interesting thing was that in doing the research into Merlin, uh, I ended up doing a lot of research into Arthur as well and into Arthurian legend and Arthur uh, ducks below him and so yes, on. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, Cumbria plays a big part. Yeah, Cumbria, Gaelic's long gone as well. That's the extraordinary thing, even though the place names are there. But yeah. have you got Alistair Moffat's The Lost Kingdoms at all? Yes. I think that's my. F apart from um, oh that that big green one I recommended on uh, Arthur, um, and uh, that's my favourite I think because it's. Uh, I, th I got that one after your writer. recommendation, oh, so really really enjoyed it, and, and I think the fact that I enjoyed doing the research so much and I had a wonderful um, tutor. Yeah. And uh, he was so encouraging. He kept saying to me, but what about so-and-so? And you could do this. And what about so-and-so? Do you know there's a Shakespeare play about Marilyn? There's, um, I, I don't have the text of it, but um, it was like, it's Thomas Kidd and Shakespeare, or you know, like Shakespeare and another writer, although it's never been credited formally to him. It might be Middleton, someone like that. And Shakespeare did. It was called. Oh, is it called the lives of the lives of Merlin or something like that? Um, I will do. It. I'll find that out for you. And I'll, that would be interesting. Because I remember a, a rehearsed reading of it at the tramway when I was a student yeah. in nineteen ninety seven. I think it was. Um, and uh, yeah, it was quite unusual because like well, that's Shakespeare, Merlin, Arthurian. What? Well, it was. Uh, it, you know, it was only two hundred years. Shakespeare was only writing two hundred years. After Merlin's, you know, uh, assumed mm -hmm. uh, lifespan, so he would have been um, quite, f and he would have been a good subject 
for for Shakespeare for any of the writers then I love an Excalibur uh, Nicol Williamson's performance of mm. of Merlin it's just he's so hammy but he's enjoying it so much and you just kind of I just love him I really a great Brechtian actor as well but um, I was going to ask about um when you did your degree what not you saying you did Scandinavian literature what Scandinavian literature did you study uh um uh, who wrote the Doll's House Ibsen Yes. Henry Gibson, that book. Oh, no, no, uh, no, The Doll's House. Yes. Henry Gibson, yes, but yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. They used to call him Henry, Henry Gibson. Henry Gibson, that's <laughs> right, yeah, Henry Gibson, yes. Yeah. And, uh, oh, so much stuff. Tim Yes, and um, 19th century French literature oh. as well, which was, which okay. was good. Uh, uh, loads and loads of wonderful stuff about mm. um, women who worked down coal mines, yeah. you know bare-breasted, pushing the coal trolleys along. Oh, fascinating stuff, yeah. And I think that the, I think the 19th century lit module was my favorite. Really, why, why, was, why do you think? The writers wrote from the heart and they, they were very creative, Everybody, but all founded in what their beliefs were, to the, right down to Dickens who experienced, you know, um, childhood poverty himself. Yeah. Um, when he was sent to the blacking factory, when his father was incarcerated for bad debts. Um, and he became passionate about it. And everybody who wrote then um, were passionate about whatever it was that they were doing. Yeah. I remember being in a play once, which was a Victorian melodrama, but I got sacked because I couldn't scream properly. Oh. I had to scream because I discovered a body behind a settee. And the the drama teacher kept saying to me for goodness sake frost scream will you and i couldn't i used to utter a little ah! <laughs> he said in the end oh go away go away girl you can't you know so the thing with Victoria, like melodrama of that period it's about the audience like it's about really committing to the audience yes. and communicating with them way back and um, everything was so much more heightened the type of acting they used to use was something called the art of representation um, amongst many systems there were kind of different different ways of doing things but the art of representation was this classified series of gestures that would you know let you feel yes, yes, yes. extraordinary stuff yes, indeed. so t- two last little questions um, the, the first of which was how have you seen Mull change in the years since you um, since you've come here since 1997 well tourism's taken off in a big way it used to be fishing forestry and farming to a huge extent. Um, you never talk about anybody on Mull because they're always related to somebody else, you That's know, so, yes, well. yeah. Uh, or another good thing is never to say a, a Gallic name until you hear somebody else say it. <laughs> oh, that is quite good. Yeah. Do you know the classic, the mistake someone made somewhere, I, I, it has to be true, I want it to be true, which is uh, they, they bought a house down by the shore and said, we like to call it uh, House of the Boats. And they sort of worked it out and they got, they, got, uh, they spelt it wrong, they misheard it and they had it as a uh, tiny Botan instead of Taina Batan. Unfortunately, Taina Botan means house of the penises. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> well, that's not inappropriate either. According to, yeah. Well, indeed. <laughs> so the tales go. So tourism's taken off in a big way. And uh, we work very hard in Holiday Mall to try and extend uh, the tourist season into the shoulder months. Um, with a degree of success because there were things like the food festival and the rally and um, music festival that we tried to incorporate into the tourist year. Um, But now uh, there's um, a huge influx of people like me who are not Scots and uh, 
people see this. Someone once said to me, you think you've found your um, Shangri-La, don't you? And I said, well, I haven't, I don't just think I found my Shangri-La. I have found my Shangri-La because for both Colin and I, the best thing that we ever did was to come to Mull and we only would ever leave feet first. Uh, but the island is busy, lots of new building, it's becoming very vibrant, um, lots of things happening and you know the question of what do you do in the winter is a silly silly question really because winter time after the tourists have gone home is when that island comes to life and there are dinner dances and parties and Kayleys and get-togethers of all kinds and it's just an absolutely wonderful place to be. Thank you so much for talking to me, Anne. I really appreciate your time. Well, it's that time of year here when the light starts to disappear and the mornings just get darker and darker and darker. It's a time for currying doon or even currying in. Not curry on its own. Curry on its own does not exist. Curry in or curry doon? What is this nonsense that people talk of? Anyway, it's time for making the most of all the books and films you've stockpiled over the summer. This weekend sees Halloween parties across the island. We'll be going to Dervig tomorrow night for our halls party. Call will be going as the Lego Batman Joker, which George has spent the last couple of days working on, and it looks fantastic. And I'm going to sneak out and nip along the road to Ambeerling for their schnitzel dinner, uh, round, which rounds off their season. I can't wait. It's always a highlight for me. And then after that, there's tunes to be had at the Bella Croix, with our local pub in Dervig, with Hector McFadgen on the box. Hector's one of the best box players you can hear, uh, a great, great musician and, a, and a, a colossuch as well, which is great. And people ask us, what do you do in the winter? As these podcasts take quite a lot of time to make, I'm looking to fundraise through donations and sponsorship. So if you feel like it and are able to, please feel free to donate the cost of a cup of coffee or even a sausage roll, wherever you may be, through the website. You'll see a donate tab there where you can donate if you so wished. If you're a business and would like to sponsor an episode, please feel free to drop me a line anytime. But don't worry if you can't or you don't want to sponsor or donate. I'd much rather that you listened than you didn't. And I'd like to say hello and thank you to the men of the Mull 72 Club who had me along for dinner the other evening. It was a delight to be in your company. Thank you. And to those of you who have reached out to say hello again, thank you. It's always great to hear from you. There's plenty more to come. I recorded an interview with a good friend just the other day, and then I'm off to Tob on Monday to talk to a gentleman that a few people have been asking me to track down, so I'm delighted about that. You can follow the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and TuneIn Radio. We can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and through our website on www.whatwedointhewinter.com. And a wee message for Frankie in Norway. I hope your recovery is swift and that the doctors are of the medical type and not interstellar wanderers from the planet of Gallifrey. Thank you all for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Shinu, morning, dang.